Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is the former editor of Pro Sound News, Frank Wells. But first of all, there's been a very interesting development in piracy or how piracy actually affects the music business, but not only the music business, but the entertainment business as a whole. It turns out that there was a 300-page report that was commissioned by the European Union, the EU, that was actually suppressed. And no one would ever have known about this if it wasn't for the fact that someone had used it in a doctoral dissertation and didn't actually provide it as a source, but a couple of people actually tracked it down and found out that there's this report that was never released and it was all about piracy and how it affects sales, how it affects consumption not only of music, but also books and video games and movies. You know what it found out? It found out that it doesn't hurt any of those entertainment vehicles at all. Now, this happened in 2015. Again, never released until just recently, and then it wasn't officially released. It turns out that the only portion of the entertainment business that was actually hurt was blockbuster films. Other than that... Video game sales were actually boosted by piracy. I've suspected that this has been the case for a long time. A lot of the piracy figures that we would hear from the RIAA were always just assumptions. There was never actually any hard consensus of what was happening. Now, of course, with streaming music, piracy is a non-factor anymore because of streaming. Of course, when it comes to other entertainment especially movies and games, that's another thing. That being said, it looks like piracy, if anything, helps those particular entertainment vehicles. So let's not go crazy on this piracy thing anymore because piracy does hurt to some degree, but it's never been to the degree that the industry or industries have promoted. have any questions or comments send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com the second edition of my social media promotion for musicians handbook is now available on amazon ibooks ingram and a bookstore near you it's the manual for marketing yourself your band and your music online and covers how to use virtually every important online platform for promotion also check out my courses at bobbyosinskicourses.com <laughs> Harman International recently acquired Samsung in an $8 billion deal. And now, about six or eight months later, it turns out that Harman is going to lay off about 650 people in the pro audio side of its business. Harman has a lot of different brands that they've acquired through the years. AKG, AMX, BSS, Crown, DBX, Digitech, of course, JBL Professional always, Lexicon, Martin Audio, Soundcraft, Studer. There's a huge list, but it looks like a lot of those people are going to be laid off within the next 9 to 12 months. What the company is also going to do is consolidate its R&D into three particular centers. Of course, Acoustics will always be in Northridge where Harman is based, but DSP and Video is going to be in Richardson, Texas. 
and lighting is going to be in Denmark. Beyond that, Harman has announced it's going to build a number of experience centers, both in the United States and Europe, and that's so people can experience its products. This is just another case of having a huge conglomerate that's buying up small brands, and the brands, of course, never being the same afterwards. We've seen this happen over and over and over again, where you have this great old brand, and all of a sudden, it's a shell of its former self. It just goes to show you that in the audio business, bigger is not necessarily better. The reason being the audio business isn't big enough by itself, especially the pro audio business or the musical instrument business, to actually support these large conglomerates. And now almost all of them are running into some problems because they just can't scale. And of course, what you're going to have is very unhappy investors, very unhappy stockholders, and Wall Street will not be happy as well. And who gets it in the end? Well, that's the consumer. That's the people who buy the products. So it's unfortunate, but we're going to see a lot of changes in those companies because of the harm and layoffs in the coming months. My guest today is Frank Wells, who started his career in the music business as head of technical services at Masterphonics in Nashville. He then went on to become editor of Audio Media Magazine and then ProSound News. I talked to Frank about some of the things that go on behind the scenes of being a magazine editor, but we also discussed the big picture of the audio business as well as the future of audio gear. I spoke with him via phone from his office in Nashville. How did you get into the audio business? You, you were doing radio first, right? Yeah, I started out with uh, military electronics, uh, ground radio. So that's like point-to-point and long-haul stuff. Um, primarily worked on HF while I was in, and then um, went to school at MTSU to get a radio TV film degree, um, figuring radio, I could like work on the gear and learn about operations such and be, uh, be more useful and perhaps more readily find employment. He interned with the chief engineer at WMOT at MTSU, and uh, he left right as I graduated, so I walked into his job, um, really based more on my military experience than what I learned in school. So I was chief engineer of that 50-kilowatt station, worked on a number of others on the side. My better interns were from the recording program. I'd taken just one technology recording class in college, but they have a, you know the great recording program at MTSU, and I could find guys from the recording program that wanted to line tape machines all day long. So one of those former interns introduced me to Glenn Meadows at Masterphonics, who was looking for a tech at the time. And a couple of weeks later, I was uh, chief of technical services for Masterphonics, it's what became a seven-room, two-building complex uh, on Music Row in Nashville. So you go from radio the recording industry what was that because those are two completely different mindsets well yes they are um the way that i always looked at it is my expertise was large system signal flow that's really what i was good at whether that's a radio station um that goes off the air for some reason where's the problem and you have to know the signal flow between the microphone and the studio transmitter link and the processing and the consoles um, all the way out to the transmitter itself and up the power to the antenna. And you have to be able to quickly figure out what's going on and break that down. Um, when I went to see Glenn, I mean, you know, audio radio is 
is uh, at its core an audio delivery vehicle, so certainly I knew audio, but it is a very different thing. Of course, the uh, consoles are much more sophisticated. The signal flow in the console is maybe as sophisticated as a radio station itself, but they had all the manuals and great test gear and great resources, and they knew what it took to get the job done. And they, to my great benefit, gave me the time to learn what I needed to about the uh, recording studio business. And the technology of recording class I'd had in school had given me that basic core recording studio signal flow. So I had a lot to learn about quality and um, the particular aspects of, of recording, but my job was to make all the gear work and make it connect together and to keep the electrons flowing. And that's, uh, you know, that's kind of what I was doing already. Yeah. But the other part of the mindset is the fact that just the operations part, which is so different. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very different. Um, when you've got a room full of triple scale musicians tapping their feet because something's wrong with the console, uh, <laughs> you, again, that signal flow stuff comes into mind. You've got to be able to quickly figure out where the problem is and say, okay, we can get around this by doing this, or you can take a break and I can fix it. And they usually opt for the former, but there's the whole political side to it. When Barry Beckett was in the back room at Masterphonics, which he was, oh, 10 months out of the year for several years there, um, you also had to make Barry smile before you left the room. So there's a there's a personal interaction kind of thing between there. As soon as Barry smiled, everybody just sighed, and the next take was good. But if he was still tense about technical issues and, and not sure that they might rear their heads again and slow his flow, you know, you had to you had to play that game. And it, it's, yeah, you're dealing with a lot of personalities um, and a lot more moving parts for sure. You mentioned quality before, and my experience at radio stations, the big ones, of course, are very concerned about quality, but more so on a competitive basis on, well, what's my biggest competitor sound like, and how can I either sound like that or make it better? Was that sort of the mindset in radio and the stations that you were working with? Yes and no. The public station I worked at was concerned about the best quality they could get out of the broadcast it was a jazz station so they wanted music to sound like music um some of the commercial stations i worked at were trying very hard to be the loudest thing on the dial so they're they're crunching and squeezing and multi-band compression and all the techniques that radio stations use to um destroy their dynamic range and the recording industry didn't learn how to destroy dynamic range for a number of years after that <laughs> um, you know, at one time, broadcast quality actually meant the highest standards in quality, but the recording studios and such passed that up um, at some point along the way, and with digital, um, it, it became even more so. So you could have an all-digital recording station infrastructure, but you're still limited to 50, kilo, 50 hertz to 15 kilohertz audio, and you're still limited to 35 dB of dynamic range. That's not to say that the recording studio guys always use the capability, but suddenly you have to uh, you have to expand that. So that really kind of came from the military when I was in the Air Force. All that you cared about bandwidth-wise was 300 to 3K. You know, you're just trying to make voices intelligible. And then uh, with radio, I had to uh, broaden that definition of 
of what portions of the signal band to, to worry about. And then with recording studios, it, it, we stretched that out to the limits of human hearing, especially at Masterphonics, which was a, a very digital facility from the start. So the dynamic range capabilities were much more. So you have to worry far more about noise floor and signal bandwidth. And of course, they had um, incredible rooms that, uh, that could reproduce down to, down to 20 hertz. And you've got to worry about the, the full spectrum of human hearing at that point. Was it difficult for you to get into digital or make the, the transition from analog to digital? Not too bad. One of the courses I took in, in I went into college with a bunch of credits from the, from the military for electronics, obviously. So one of my minors was industrial studies. And it, as it turned out, the, uh, the, I went to the industrial studies department and said, what have I got to do to make this a minor? And he said, well, take this, um, take this microprocessors course. And essentially it was a course that wasn't filling up fast enough to suit him and the professor and they didn't want to cancel it. So he told me if I took that course and passed it, I could uh, use my other credits and call it a minor. And I actually took that course and a follow-up to it. So it was pretty primitive, but we were learning, um, learning encoding and programming at the machine code level. And, the little processors that we were using had a circuit board breakout on them, and we were experimenting with um, analog devices, uh, A to Ds and DAs on those. So my final project for the second class was building a sampling oscilloscope, um, which was only good to about 200 hertz and not, <laughs> not terribly <laughs> accurate and had no filtering. So it actually did look like that stair-steppy wave. But when digital audio came around, um, I had at least some fundamentals of what sample and hold and um, conversion from analog to digital looked like. And uh, the radio station actually got to use uh, a Nakamichi recorder from the Center for Popular Music there. And we used to go do live jazz recordings at events in Nashville. And we used the Nakamichi, which is, of course, encoding digital audio. It's black and white dots on videotape. Um, much like the 1630s for CD masters later. And that introduced me to digital audio and compact disc came along, of course, and started replacing vinyl. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a horrible transition, but I had the great benefit of walking into Masterphonics, who had been doing digital audio for eight years when I got there from the very outset of, of, of CDs. They had embraced digital, so we had digital multitracks, we had digital two tracks. Glenn had the first. Um, Glenn Meadows had the first all digital uh, mastering path in town with a JVC four channel digital console and other processing and such. So it was a great learning environment. As the digital audio industry grew, we got to play with all the new toys and experiment with them and expand upon them. Be that. Um, be that recorders all the way up to the first uh, the first large format digital mixing console in uh, in Nashville. What was the most fun thing for you to do while you were part of that? The most fun things there's kind of the, the the simpler thing is is well two two answers. One is someone comes up with a with a problem that they say you know it would really be helpful for me if. And it may be as simple as a light bulb flashing on the console when somebody ring the doorbell because they could hear it, or it may be um, routing signals differently or adding um, adding a processor in to 
uh, adding a small circuit into a circuit board to do something somebody wanted that solved a problem for them. And I had just great resources, like I said, it, and we could go back in the shop and perf board something up and build a build a little circuit that did what they wanted to do and implement it. And doing that overnight sometimes and, and having them walk in the next day with their with their dreams come true was always very satisfying. Um, walking in and hearing the music on a session, you know, slipping in the back room and hearing the music going down live and, and seeing that everything that you were taking care of was was performing as it should and that the musicians were comfortable and they were in the groove and you got to hear the stuff as it was being performed. There's uh, there's really no no substitute for that at all. Plus, I'll add one more thing to that is, is expanding on the, the circuit design is Glenn was always trying to make things better. So pretty much when a piece of gear came in, we voided the warranty almost immediately and popped the cops on it and saying, you know, can we beef up the power supply? Can we put better chips in? Can we do something that will make this, uh, make this box perform better for us? And we would, we would do that. That's the Abbey road philosophy where the, the MI boffins did that forever. Okay. So how did you get into writing then? <laughs> um, I'll, it, it actually goes to Pro Audio Review. Uh, John Gatsky was the editor at the time, and he had called down to Masterphonics before their second issue and said, um, we want a review on this Apogee UV-1000, which was a mastering box that did some routing, that did some, would do polarity inversion, it would do... Uh, a f- just a few other tricks that would add the UV-22 dithering and, and such. And they had sold four of them and Masterphonics had bought three of them. And he They didn't have any others in stock and he couldn't get a review sample. So he called Glenn and asked him if he wanted to do a review. And Glenn um, said, I haven't got time. See if Frank wants to do it. So I wrote that up for them and they kept asking for bench tests or reviews for the next two years, I had a piece or two in every issue, and I just worked out a deal with Glenn where I did it on company time. Masterphonics got a plug, and I split the money with. Him. Wow! So, how long did you do that for? Yeah, that was that was two years. That was from their second issue for for two more years, and then uh, moving into the editor's job and moving out of the shop, um, the publisher of audio media, which was UK based only at the time, uh, wanted to do a U.S. edition of the magazine. And he had decided that Nashville would be the place that it would be based largely on the vice of uh, the folks at Sadie who had their U.S. headquarters in Nashville. They could be overlapping with the UK for half the day uh, time-wise, but it wasn't expensive as New York and L.A., also had the expense, plus you were almost never on the same time zone. So he had come over with the Sadie bean counter at the time and was checking out Nashville. And a friend of mine who worked at Sadie said, have you ever thought about editing a magazine? And I said, no. And he said, well, think about it. And a couple of days later, I said, so what were you talking about? And he introduced me to Godfrey. And three weeks later, I was the editor of a magazine. So I, it was uh, it was a time where the ADATs and Pro Tools and such were starting to uh, 
eat into the large studio uh, business, and we had built a $3 million tracking room. We weren't going to be spending any money and doing anything new for a while, um, and I could just kind of see the writing on the wall, so I opted for something a little bit uh, a little bit cleaner with a little bit nor- more normal hours after having worked in rooms without windows for 15 years. What was the transition like? There must have been some culture shock involved, I would imagine. A <laughs> little bit, a little bit. Uh, some of it was, was working with the British, and you think we speak the lang- same language until you have to start putting it in print and translating everything forward. So I say, like I say, I'm bilingual. I speak British English and U.S. English. Uh, <laughs> Every so often when I was flipping the articles for the U.S. edition and, and they would be doing the same, I would offer them a, a drawer full of useless use that I had collected and they'd send me some Zeds back to put back into uh, into U.S. words. But it's it's a different sort of signal flow for sure, but it it still has aspects of of project management, resource management, time-based, deadlines, that sort of thing. Um the writing part for was was not the hardest part. The, the hardest part is just working out the logistics and, and figuring out a new a new workflow and a new paradigm and a new set of time demands. You know, I empathize when you're talking about working for the British because I worked for AMEC for a couple of years in the early mm-hmm. 80s, <laughs> and it was much the same thing. But, of course, I was based in L.A., so they would always mm-hmm. think that we were out on the beach and not working. <laughs> They'd call up and it would be horribly raining over there and miserable and it'd be sunny over here and they'd be just miserable because of that and saying, oh, you guys with your 7-Elevens and your beach. <laughs> and, it would, you right. know, there'd be the, this, this clash of cultures. And the fact of the matter is when they get over here, they loved it just as much as we did. So, <laughs> right. you know, it's right. one of those things when you don't have it, you really would like to. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I I empathize completely with that. Okay, so let's talk about being a magazine editor because it's misunderstood, I think, Mm -hmm. from the standpoint that when an outsider looks at it, they think, well, here's this guy that gets to go all over the world and see the latest gear that's coming out and he gets to see behind the scenes and all that, but they don't necessarily understand the work involved. Yeah, it's true. Yes, there are there are benefits from it. You you do get to to see the latest and greatest. If you're a magazine that does reviews, you get to get your hands on it before anyone else does, and you get to play with the gear, and you build the relationships that let you have access to these things uh, early on, and and sometimes you do get to visit studios or there are press visits to exotic locales the other side of it is though you you get to travel all over the world you're so lucky and i ask them if they want a comparative analysis of convention centers and convention hotels (laughs) because most of the time you're doing 16-hour days when you're at conventions and such and if you're lucky you get to go out for a nice dinner with a with a good local field and experience a little bit of uh of a city in the evenings but for the most part it's pretty much over there work a lot and back, but deadlines are, um, are a huge part of it. It's a lot of content going out. It's trade journalism is, is of course different from the New York times or, or a broadcast 
outfit, you are looking to serve two masters to a certain extent. And there's a, there's a real dance that you have to do um, in terms of, of what you put into a magazine. Of course, the manufacturers would like it if you would just do nothing more than regurgitate their party line from press releases and those sorts of things, and everything's the most wonderful piece of gear in the world. And at the same time, you've got your readers who want information they can use, and you've got to share with them um, information that helps them do their jobs better, do their jobs faster, do their jobs more efficiently, learn what their competition is doing, keep them abreast of all of the latest changes in the industry, how that's going to affect them, and be a real tool for them. If you don't have that credibility with your readers, then you don't have anything to sell to the advertisers. So uh, most of the advertisers are are pretty realistic, but it's it it does get to be a little bit of a of a of a political game sometimes, and maybe that's where some of the some of the um, politics of human interaction that you that you have to deal with in the studio uh, comes into play in bringing that to the editor's chairs because you're um, balancing a lot of disparate needs and demands and trying to keep everybody happy at the same time. But I, I think coming from the industry and having been a reader of all the magazines helped me a lot because I knew what I wanted to read and I didn't want to read just a press release. And you could tell when somebody hadn't even edited it all, all the superlatives are still in there <laughs> and all the, the claims about groundbreaking this and that and, and even specifications that you know are a little bit dubious. So there's, there's even little shading areas in there. We call it putting weasel words in, you know, according to the manufacturer. If you can't substantiate something yourself from direct experience, then maybe you not ought, might not ought to state it as a fact. So yeah. there's, um, there's a feel that comes to the magazine and you've been an editor too i know and have worked with me on surround professional and other magazines and such uh, over the years um and self-editing yourself for your books and such you kind of you kind of know where that balance is is can be difficult and it's a lot of work but the legit the, and then the other side of it that is that is just not a picnic it's just the sheer logistics of it all as soon as you finish a magazine it's like well there we finished it no, we got another one. <laughs> There's <laughs> always another one if you're lucky. And you've got to dive right in again. You've got to think ahead. You've got to be planning stories. You can't necessarily get a review done in a month. You can't get the gear, get it to the person, have them do real things with it, and get you the text back. So you may be working on longer lead times for um, for publications. You've got to be thinking about the Christmas issue when it's July or something like that. So it's, uh, it's, there's, there's a lot of moving parts and you've got to be a juggler to, to keep them all in play and keep all the balls in the air without dropping any. I guess, especially when you were at pro sound news, there's also the fact that you're talking about multiple industries within the same industry, because you're talking about sound reinforcement. You're talking about the studio industry. You're, you're talking about the installer industry. So there's, you're talking to three different sub-industries at the same time. So, you know, there's that balance as well that you have to play. Sure. There, there's, 
you know, in some ways, audio signal flow is audio signal flow, and then in a lot of other ways, it's not because the the needs of a of a PA system for a large concert are very different than the needs of a um, main monitor system in a control room, and the way that they approach the business side of it on both of them too. And ProSound News very much um, paid attention to the business of those aspects of the industry as well. So I will readily admit I didn't have a lot of live sound experience going into ProSound News, but that was that's that was and still is the strongest. Um, section of that magazine. Fortunately, I had um, Clive Young, who had been there for years and, and knew the business side really well. I could uh, bring the tech knowledge in there to to polish up and, and improve that. And a lot of it's just over time. You, if, if The more you're exposed to it and the more you talk to people and learn what their needs are and what their demands on them are and what their challenges are, then you can look for ways to to help them address those challenges. But it takes a while before you can really feel like, yeah, I could talk about post or I could talk about live sound just as readily as I could talk about studios from having lived it. How long were you at ProSound News? Man, that's a good long time at anything. <laughs> it's a good long stretch. I did, uh, I was at, Radio for six, Masterphonics for nine, a little over nine, um, audio media for two, and then and then ProSound News poached me away and was there for 15 years. And now you're still editing. I am still editing. I, I work for myself now, but I was just, it was every 15 years, maybe it's time for a change. So I was looking for something a little bit different. So I kind of looked around to folks I'd worked with. Obviously, I'd been involved in the Audio Engineering Society and and still was as a volunteer and a board member. And we had always, Bob Moses and I had always talked about being able to work together with working with Bob. We had brought Robbie Klein in for Klein Media as their PR and marketing firm uh, for the society to the society's great benefit. And... Um, of course, you get to know publishers around the world from working with a large group and then just meeting people at press conferences and such around the world and had built a relationship with, with Richard Long, who is a blank canvas, who does uh, pro audio video and lighting magazines for Asia, the Middle East, and Africa primarily. And I put together a coalition of my friends who would buy chunks of my time. So sold some to AES and some to Robbie and some to and some to Dickie and I technically work for myself but it's kind of also like I have three jobs. Hey, it's nice to be wanted. No big deal there. Yep. And it comes down to it. <laughs> exactly. All right. So there are a few people that have the overview, I think, of the many businesses within a business of audio than you do. So uh, let's talk a, a little on the philosophical side, a little on the, the global side. Things have changed a lot in the last, oh, 10 years. Oh, yeah. That being said, is there a trend happening right now that you see that's a little on the underground that people don't understand is happening yet? Oh, yeah. I would, I would really lean towards, I, I know there's a lot of buzz about it, but I don't think people really understand the full ramifications and how deep um, virtual reality 
is is going to penetrate um, multiple multiple media. So be that um, audio for for video and uh, virtual and augmented reality. Uh, the ABAR conference that AES had at LA last year brought a lot to that to bear. And one of the things that made that conference a success was people were getting together and talking about implementing audio for those markets. And those markets are multifaceted. It's not just gaming. It's also training and teaching and putting a VR headset on someone and teaching them how to do something. They can have gloves that are moving and they can interact and do a virtual space, much as the same as a flight simulator was to a pilot. Now you can take that kind of technology and build it into a personal experience without a huge amount of external hardware. And you can build a training environment for a host of, of different trades. Finding a way of for professional audio folks who may not have the outlet for uh, the money's not there in recording anymore. Is this a new outlet for them? It very well could be. Um, it's going to keep penetrating on the post side and in movies, of course, and it's going to continue on, on gaming, but finding alternate uses for virtual reality applications. I think we're just at the cusp of that, and individuals that are working in audio that, that get a handle on where that's going, I think would be ahead of the pack. Now, see, I agree with you to some degree and mm -hmm. I'm not so sure in another degree. All right. I've been watching this carefully myself going to conferences here and I have a number of friends that are really into it on a high level. And it seems to me the virtual reality may not actually catch on the way everyone had anticipated. But augmented reality seems to be the future. Yeah. And that is the one that seems to be exciting. That being said, when it comes down to it, audio for any kind of mixed reality is important. Right. And just like with any kind of picture, usually audio gets the least amount of concern. But this time I think it's different because there's a lot of people that kind of understand that in order to make that work, any kind of mixed reality environment work, they have to have good audio experience. So I think, you know, we're ahead of the curve for a change on that. So I agree with you there that I think that there's going to be a lot more opportunity in the future in, in that, whether it's going to be virtual or mixed or augmented reality, I'm not sure, but I think that it's going to open up right. some opportunities. Yeah, but opening it up to, to augmented as well, but creating immersive audio experiences across a broad range of platforms will certainly be be more of a part. There's more personal monitoring going on now uh, in audio than there ever has been in the past. And it's not just putting a pair of, of binaural stereo headphones on and listening to music or or listening to your game. It's also taking these virtual realities and transposing them into a headphone environment with all the various encoders that will do so, and then putting you in the place. And that can translate to music by putting you in the audience at a concert, 
or it can translate to a video game where you're hearing that guy sneaking up behind you before you turn around and blast him because he was about to do the same to you. On another level here, where do you see the business headed? <laughs> yeah, that's a long, yeah, it could be a long question. Um, obviously, we've seen recording move into a more, much more of a personal studio space. Uh, people who, many name engineers who used to work in uh, in the big studios and and command hundreds of dollars a day on top of the of the fifteen hundred dollar studio rate and rental fees and all of that are now being hired perhaps for a day rate, but they've got a studio they built at their home and they're using their own gear and they're working in the box in in a lot of ways uh, for much of their production. And that whole financial infrastructure that used to fund those large studios is has just collapsed uh, along with and partly because of the infrastructure being able to be collapsed into, into a personal computer. So that is also being translated now more into post. I mean, we've been kind of anticipating that it would get more so uh, for years, but I think it's finally um, more possible for that to happen in the post-production environment as well. So you're you're moving to more insular um, insular forms of production. For live sound, it's just gotten more efficient, but you still have to have a big box and you still have to have powerful amplifiers to push the air, and you still have to have a lot of inputs on a console to do the production that is a, a live multi-instrumentalist performance, uh, a band to an orchestra. Uh, but the truck packs have gotten, of course, incredibly smaller as the transducers have gotten more efficient as all of the processing has been replaced with DSP processing and as the digital consoles have smaller footprints and they're not connected with a multi-core snake or two or three that have to run to the stage that weigh hundreds of pounds, but rather a pair of fiber optic cables and one of those is redundant. So that can't get too much smaller and still give the engineers the tactile feedback and the visual information they need, but that, that has gotten smaller. And what it's also done is on a club level or a house of worship level, it's allowed far more sophisticated productions than were possible in the past because so many of the tools are built into the even a small format digital console these days. And there's a lot more capability there that is enabling um, more elaborate productions in that regard. Install sound is still is still huge and is is maybe not maybe the only part of the industry that's not really getting smaller is uh, is contracting market um, that many of the contracting magazines are the healthiest magazines out there and as long as they're building buildings they're going to be putting audiovisual and lighting systems into those buildings and as long as they're building venues there's going to need 
be the need for installed sound base, be that venue a hockey arena where you're entertaining the fans and trying to get good quality sound to all of them in a difficult space, or be it um, a house of worship or even an airport where you're trying to make those um, ceiling speakers actually perform to a way that you're they're intelligible and not interfering with one another, and you've got efficient uh, efficient PA systems that are flexible and routable and digitally controlled, and and that whole infrastructure has gotten smaller too. So, anyway, there's digital has changed everything, and it's seen the recording industry shrink. It's seen live sound packs shrink, and and what's required to do stellar production, and it's seen actually an expansion on the installed sound side because now suddenly with 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 digital networking and infrastructure you can get more sophisticated there and and more evolved than was possible before with install sound you say it's growing is it mostly because of new venues new installations or is it upgrades of existing ones it's both it is definitely both uh, on, on church sound systems, they've all, they always said the, uh, that every church purchases three systems. One that they they just put in at the time that they uh, they built the facility and it didn't work out quite like they planned. And so then they maybe go to their local music store and get some great advice and they put in their second system and maybe it's a little better, but it still doesn't work out like they planned. And then they actually hire a pro and do it right. And that's the third system they do. <laughs> but uh, it's... That that axiom actually is 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 not as as true as it once was. Our our, our understanding that if um, if it's all about the word and the word is unintelligible, then then it's not going to be an acceptable portion of their install. And with the um, with the movement of of a church towards uh, a full band on stage, live musicians and modern contemporary uh, worship styles, it's much more similar to a live sound production than it is to a house of worship install from years gone by. So those are continually getting more sophisticated and more is expected out of them as people uh, as people's experiences uh, with, with sound and, and performance improve. Um, but, you know, if you look around a city like Nashville and pretty much every city I've been in, there's, there's construction going on everywhere. And if it's a, uh, if it's a business enterprise, there will be some AV component. And certainly if uh, at a minimum, there'll be conference rooms and those kind of things, which with long distance communications and video conferencing and interaction worldwide, those facilities are getting more sophisticated and are calling for more uh, more audiovisual support uh, along with uh, along with upgrades to existing but it's 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 driven by it's driven by both you are very technically sophisticated do you see a trend in audio gear that's happening well networking is the obvious one um, the replacement of analog wiring that's almost pervasive in live sound now that that the conventional analog snake is a thing of the past there's a stage box that's got ethernet or um 
fiber optic cables um, coming out of the back of it and running to the running to the stage, and you've you've cleaned things up and and re- put the mic pre's right there on the stage, but control them from the console on the other end. Um, digital audio networking is allowing um, a great deal of sophist- more sophisticated installations and actually cheaper installations because Ethernet is cheap. You can run that all over the place and you need a lot less runs of it to do the same capability. So a, a, a church that might might have been able to only afford a certain number of channels in the past can now buy a fairly inexpensive digital console that's got digital audio networking in it and stage boxes and they, they it increases their capability immensely. And that's finally starting to come around to even back into the recording studio with things like Dante networking with um, RedNet boxes from Focusrite, for example. You can use a modular building block approach of network devices or DigiGrid devices from Waves and DigiCo um, that you can actually, instead of saying, I've got to have a big one of these and a big one of those to handle everything I need. You can start putting little satellite boxes out everywhere that uh, do a small part of the job, and but they're connected through the network to the larger piece, and everything's working just more efficiently. Uh, you're being able to distribute things to places that you wouldn't be able to use before and move towards larger channel counts and... Um, just a lot of flexibility within uh, within an infrastructure and within the way you configure things. You could have a stack of of these modular boxes on a shelf and reconfigure them um, on demand for different types of applications, from running them in a studio to taking them out for for a live performance. So, digital audio networking has been huge. The digital, the overall digital digitalization of audio infrastructure is all but ubiquitous. Of course, there's, there's still, um, there's still some analog tape out there. There's still some analog tape machines, although the new ones are being built. There's still analog consoles and people use them as tools for character and for particular goals of production. However, the largest portion of the infrastructure and, um, capability, and of course, distribution has all gone digital. Last question, Frank. What's the best piece of business advice that you've either received from somebody through the years or maybe you learned on your own? Okay. So there was this consultant named Jeff Gittimer who used to speak at these Spars BizNet conferences. And this is, this is not a, this is, this is not maybe super business technical it's certainly not technical as far as uh, as far as audio gear goes but as one of these conferences he said all things being equal you want to do business with your friends he said all things being unequal you still want to do business with your friends huh. so <laughs> it's i think the most you can do is say i have resources to do a job there are people who have jobs that they need to be done. That could be pages in a magazine, words in a magazine, uh, the choice of stories that I'm going to run, or it could be what piece of gear to put in uh, to a studio uh, to serve a client better, anything else. 
make friends first and use your resources to support your friends and success has, has followed that philosophy. Wow. That's excellent. Very cool, Frank. I'm glad you like it. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or you can go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>